Some of us have better poker faces than others. How would yours measure up if you had to work closely with the FBI, knowing you were guilty of a serious crime they had no idea about? Could you keep your cool? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. This week, we're telling the story of Mark Whitaker, the man who became embroiled in one of the most notorious corporate conspiracies in American history, only for his own deceptions to be unmasked in the process. In the early 90s, to anyone looking from the outside, Mark Whitaker's life appeared perfect. He was a skilled scientist who had received a doctorate in biochemistry from an Ivy League university. He was happily married to his childhood sweetheart, Ginger. He had three beautiful children, two of them adopted, and he had a top job at one of the world's largest nutrition companies. Archer Daniels Midland, known as ADM, was one of those corporations that few people had heard of. Yet their products could be found in every home in America. They took raw goods like corn, soy, and wheat and processed them into oils, corn syrup, and food additives. Their products were in Jell-O, Nabisco saltines, Hellman's mayonnaise, and baby formula. The company liked to describe itself as the supermarket to the world. Mark Whitaker had joined ADM in late 1989 and was soon making a seven-figure salary as head of the bioproducts division. He had access to a company car and a fleet of private jets, and he and his wife Ginger were able to buy a vast mansion in rural Illinois, not far from ADM's headquarters in Decatur. In other words, Mark Whitaker was a rising star, talented and well-liked. In fact, in April 1992, he was given the title of corporate vice president of the company, and there were even whispers that one day he might become president. For Mark, this was beyond his wildest dreams. Mark wasn't shy about telling people the story of his humble beginnings. Both of his parents had been killed in a car accident when he was young. Confined to an orphanage in Ohio as a young boy, he feared he would never be loved again. But out of the blue, Mark had been adopted by a wealthy businessman who owned amusement parks. He'd been plucked from poverty and gifted with a great education, which had led him to ADM and the good life. But what Mark was less open about was the fact that beneath the surface of this amazing success story, there was something more going on. Something darker. Mark Whitaker had a serious problem, one that could potentially derail his meteoric rise. The truth was, in 1990, Mark Whitaker had fallen for a con. Everyone's heard about the Nigerian prince scam, the emails from royalty which promise huge payouts to anyone who can help the sender move money overseas. Well, in the early 1990s, there was a slightly more sophisticated version of that same scam doing the rounds, specifically targeted at executives and high-power corporate people like Mark Whitaker. 
Fraudsters would contact executives and claim that they were bureaucrats from the Nigerian oil ministry who wanted to offer them a lucrative opportunity. They were desperate to try and shift overbilled cash out of the country into offshore bank accounts. And all the target had to do was pay up a few thousand dollars to facilitate the transactions, with the promise that they would receive a cut of the larger amount, potentially millions of dollars, once the transactions had gone through. While most people had seen through the con, Mark hadn't. In 1990, he had sent several hundred thousand dollars to his Nigerian friends and had even encouraged a few friends to join in on what he thought would be a great investment. His thousands had, of course, disappeared. And so did the money invested by Mark's colleagues. Mark was left in a bind. Not only was he embarrassed that his friends had lost money, he was also thousands of dollars out of pocket. And so, to make the money he'd lost back, Mark made a drastic decision. Here he was in a top position at one of the most profitable businesses in the world. ADM was raking it in. Surely no one would notice if he skimmed a little money off the top. And so, Mark had started scheming. As the head of a division at ADM, he had the power to recruit staff. And he realized he could use this to his advantage. He began hiring people he knew from other companies, paying them six-figure salaries and bonuses. Only, those people would never actually work for ADM. Instead, they would funnel part of the salary and hiring bonus back to Mark. He started to make back a little of what he'd lost. And when nobody asked questions, he carried on. He set up shell companies and began filing invoices from those companies to ADM. At first, it was tens of thousands of dollars, just enough to fill his empty coffers. Then it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. He had to set up offshore bank accounts in Switzerland and the Cayman Islands to deal with it all. For Mark, it was as thrilling as it was anxiety-inducing. For the next couple of years, Mark continued stealing from the company, well over what he'd lost in the scam, and nobody seemed to notice. Perhaps this was because ADM was such a massive firm. Perhaps because Mark had significant power as a division president. Or perhaps because the ADM executives were distracted by another scam. One they were running themselves. One of Mark's main roles at ADM was to help them develop the means to produce an amino acid called lysine. Lysine was valuable because it can be added to animal food to bulk up the growth of pigs, cattle, and chickens. And in the early 90s, there was a lot of money to be made if ADM could break into the lysine market, which was usually controlled by Japanese corporations. In fact, ADM was such an enormous company with such enormous capacity that if it cracked lysine, it could almost take over the entire market on its own. And so, while Mark was busy working out the chemistry of lysine production, the other executives saw another opportunity to make even more money. ADM, along with their competitors in Europe and Asia, began to conspire to fix the price of some of their products. 
a practice which is completely illegal. Price fixing is what happens when several manufacturers of a product get together and agree to keep their prices high. Say, for example, you run a company that produces sugar. In a normal market, your company will compete with other producers for the largest number of customers. And the best way to get those customers is by dropping the price of your sugar. But that means the other companies will also reduce their prices to attract those same customers, and suddenly, you're in a race to the bottom and your chance to make a profit has disappeared. But what if you had a meeting with the other people who make sugar and said, I'll make this much sugar this year and I'll sell it for a particular price. And if you do the same, then the price will stay steady and we'll all make a huge profit. If you all agreed to stick to these rules, there would be nothing the customers could do about it. And while it might seem like small potatoes, just adding a few cents to the weekly grocery bill, this ultimately disrupts the natural laws of supply and demand. And if unchecked, could push up the prices of many products for the average household. Which is why the United States government takes price fixing very seriously. In fact, there's an entire division of the Department of Justice dedicated to stamping it out the antitrust division. When Mark first heard about ADM's lysine price-fixing plan, he was surprised that they would take such a risk. But all the other executives and competitors seemed on board with the idea. And so, in 1992, when ADM began coming to some lucrative agreements, Mark, as head of the bioproducts division, was a big part of the discussions. He knew what the company was doing was wrong and could hurt customers, but he didn't want to rock the boat and upset his bosses. In any way, he had his hands full with the embezzlement. But that wasn't all. Mark was dealing with yet another issue at work. A problem that he just couldn't solve. With the price-fixing talks well underway, it was time for ADM to put their plan into action and start sending their newly produced lysine into the world. But the lysine he'd been working on wasn't ready. There was clearly something wrong with the process. And Mark, who was supposed to be the expert, couldn't work out what it was. Lysine should be fairly straightforward to make. In the plant, they'd installed huge vats, which contained a special microbe. And Mark's team fed these microbes dextrose, a kind of sugar. And they should have, in turn, created lysine. As the executives like to say, the bugs eat dextrose and crap lysine. But for some reason, the microbes just weren't eating the sugar. So they weren't producing nearly enough lysine. Day after day, Mark tried everything to fix the problem, to no avail. Soon, ADM was losing almost $7 million a month to the issue. Mark was already under as much pressure as he could bear, and this was a disaster. Everyone was relying on the lysine being done in a matter of days, and he was nowhere near ready. Mark's status as the whiz kid was on the line. Maybe his job, too. He needed more time to solve the lysine problem, to get his head together. And so, just like he had with the Nigerian scam, Mark took drastic action. 
Out of fear and out of desperation, Mark concocted a huge and bizarre lie. Just before 7 o'clock on a chilly morning in October 1992, Mark Whitaker, breathless and excited, burst into the office of his boss, Mick Andreas, the vice president of ADM. He told Mick that late the night before, he had received a phone call from Mr. Fujiwara, a man working for one of their competitors in Japan. Mr. Fujiwara had claimed that Mark's operation had been infiltrated by a mole paid by one of the Japanese lysine companies, and the mole had deliberately contaminated their production. He said that in return for several million dollars, Mr. Fujiwara would reveal the identity of the mole and send ADM a brand new, untainted microbe. Mick Andreas was shocked. The reason their lysine production was failing wasn't because of incompetence or teething issues. It was actually industrial sabotage. Mark assumed that the ADM executives would want to fix this problem discreetly, without the authorities getting involved. Mr. Fujiwara worked for one of the companies involved in their price-fixing scheme, after all. They would negotiate with Mr. Fujiwara and maybe pay out some money to make the whole thing disappear. But what Mark didn't count on was Mick calling someone even more powerful than himself. His father. Dwayne Andreas had been the head of Archer Daniels Midland for 20 years and had turned the company into an industrial behemoth. In the process of building up ADM, Dwayne himself had become incredibly powerful. He was a frequent top donor to both Republicans and Democrats in Congress, and he counted many domestic and foreign leaders amongst his friends. In fact, in the mid-1980s, Dwayne Andreas had once acted as a kind of unofficial ambassador between Ronald Reagan and the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. Amongst the rich and powerful, Dwayne was known as the Soybean King, and he had a reputation for getting things done. It was a measure of just how powerful and influential Duane was that the first person he called when he learned from his son Mick about the sabotage was a friend at the CIA. In much the same way that Mark hoped ADM would be able to sort out the blackmail internally and quietly, Duane Andreas called his friends at the CIA because of their track record of secrecy and covert actions. But despite Duane's influence, the CIA weren't interested. Instead, they passed on the accusations of sabotage and blackmail to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. When Mark Whitaker heard about this, his blood ran cold. His desperate lie had gone way further than he thought it would. He had unwittingly welcomed law enforcement right into his office. Surely it was only a matter of time before they discovered his embezzlement scheme. His only choice was to go along with whatever they wanted and hope they didn't dig too deep. And so, on the night of November 5th, 1992, Mark and Ginger Whitaker sat waiting at their home in Mawequa, Illinois. They'd been told to expect a visitor. Any moment now, an agent from the FBI was going to knock on their front door. 
Upstairs in the master bedroom, Ginger noticed that her husband was incredibly nervous. Talking to the FBI would be a scary prospect for anyone, but Mark seemed to be frightened out of his wits. Mark knew he had to tell his wife something. He was a mess. He had been for weeks, and she could always see right through him. He couldn't face admitting to her that he was embezzling money from the company, or that he'd made up a bizarre lie about a saboteur. So he told her something that he felt would be enough to explain his anxiety without painting himself in too bad a light. He explained to her that ADM had been illegally fixing prices. He was worried that if the FBI dug too deep while investigating the saboteur, they would discover everything. Ginger was appalled. She couldn't believe Mark was involved in such a thing. She urged Mark to tell the FBI what he knew. He should come clean, then resign from ADM and find a new job. But Mark wouldn't agree. At around 10 p.m., there was a knock at the door. Mark opened it to find a man who looked exactly how an FBI agent was supposed to look. Tall, with a generic haircut, and a generic suit, which hid the pistol he carried on his hip. The agent introduced himself as Brian Shepard. He'd come to place a tap on Mark's phone line. The FBI wanted to intercept the next extortion call from Mr. Fujiwara. Covering up his fear, Mark tried to turn on his businessman's charm. Sweating a little, he showed Brian the house, introduced him to Ginger, then led him to his office where his phone was. Within minutes, the device was installed. Mark had gotten through it. Relief washed over him. Brian was on his way out the door when a voice stopped him. It was Ginger. Mark has something to tell you, she said. She was determined that her husband was going to tell the truth about what he knew. Mark Whitaker climbed into Brian Shepard's car, which was parked on the driveway outside Mark's large home. He was nervous, anxious, scared to death. It was late and very quiet. He thought of his children asleep inside the house. The two men sat in silence for a while. Then Mark asked Brian a question. If he told him something about ADM, could he be prosecuted? Brian was suddenly alert, paying close attention. What was this all about? Mark took a deep breath. In a rush of words, he explained that ADM was involved in an international price-fixing scheme. He told Brian that the reason he was so nervous was because he had been coached by ADM's head of security for this very meeting. Mark had been told to lie about which of his home phone lines was being used by Mr. Fujiwara to extort the company. He had two at home, one personal, one business. And the calls from Mr. Fujiwara, he said, had been coming to Mark's personal line, the same line that he used for the price-fixing calls. He said that ADM had told him to lie and to tell the FBI that it was his business line that needed to be tapped. 
therefore diverting the FBI agent from accidentally uncovering the much larger scandal. After Mark had finished explaining everything, he could see Brian was thinking hard, trying to process what he'd just heard. Price-fixing cases were often difficult to prosecute. Investigators had to build their cases from the outside, relying on complex financial calculations between multiple companies to try and draw the shadow of a criminal conspiracy. Informants, or in the parlance of the FBI, cooperating witnesses, were almost unheard of in antitrust cases. Yet here was Mark Whitaker, scared, but apparently willing to tell Brian Shepard everything he knew. He was extremely valuable and something of a mystery. When Brian went back to the office and told his colleagues about Mark, they wondered why this well-paid executive was willing to speak out against his own company. But they also knew better than to look a gift horse in the mouth. They quickly arranged to talk to Mark again. And soon, Mark was in deep with the FBI. Mark met with Brian several more times over the next few weeks. He helped the agent to draw the outlines of just how large the price-fixing conspiracy was. And he was able to back up his claims with damning paperwork, the first corroborating evidence that he was telling the truth. Over those weeks, back at ADM, the problems with the lysine magically resolved. No one was quite sure why. And the company could finally start fulfilling its orders. This meant that the lysine price-fixing could begin in earnest. Soon, Mark was able to show Brian that ADM was making real money from price-fixing, at times as much as $2.5 million in profits a month. It was then that the FBI asked Mark to take the next step. Would he start secretly taping calls with his colleagues? Would he become an informant? Mark Whitaker, the serial embezzler, said yes. He felt he had no other option. He had spun a web of lies so fragile that at any moment he could be exposed. Mark told Brian he was a technical guy, a scientist, not a business guy. He just wanted to do the right thing. The first time Mark helped to secretly tape a conversation about price fixing was in the lobby of a cut price hotel in downtown Decatur. With Brian by his side, Mark used one of the hotel's payphones to call a business associate who worked for a competitor in Japan called Yamamoto. Hands shaking, he held the microphone of a tape recorder to the receiver of the phone while he spoke. Although the conversation wasn't exactly explosive, it certainly proved that Mark was right. Yamamoto talked about volume and prices, hinting that something shady was going on, and confirming that there were meetings planned for the coming months. For Mark, taping the conversation had been terrifying. He found it hard to act naturally, knowing that every word was being recorded. And he was ever worried that Brian would somehow discover his secret. In the days that followed, he became more and more anxious. The thought of recording another call made him sick to his stomach. And so 
he came up with a plan to get the FBI off ADM's back. Mark told Brian that the executives at ADM had been spooked by the FBI poking around in the Mr. Fujiwara sabotage case. They were going to play by the books from now on. No more price fixing. And if the price fixing was over, then there was no need for Mark to tape his colleagues and competitors. But what Mark didn't know was that at the FBI, Mark's erratic attempts to disentangle himself from their control was ringing alarm bells. Brian Shepard and his fellow agents were becoming seriously suspicious. One night in December of 1992, Mark showed up at a meeting with Brian and some other agents at the same low-price hotel in downtown Decatur. Only this time, there was someone else in the room. A polygrapher. They were going to make him take a lie detector test. Strapped in, with tubes around his chest, pads on his fingers, and his blood pressure measured, Mark sweated as he answered all the FBI's questions about price fixing, about ADM's illegal activities, and about the Mr. Fujiwara case. Had there been more phone calls, they asked him, more attempts at extortion? Mark insisted that the calls had stopped. He hadn't heard from Mr. Fujiwara since the night he first spoke to Brian Shepard. As he talked, he kept glancing down at the needles scribbling on the paper. To his surprise, they didn't seem, to his eyes, to move much. That made him feel a little more comfortable. Perhaps he was getting away with it. But when Brian reviewed the results of the lie detector test, they were startling. As one FBI agent put it, he splattered the walls with ink. They knew Mark was lying. But about what? They had their suspicions, so the next day, they pushed Mark hard. After sustained questioning, Mark finally relented. He admitted that while there was a Mr. Fujiwara, he was real and he did work for a Japanese competitor, Ajinomoto, Mark Whitaker had completely made up the extortion story and had invented the idea of corporate sabotage. Mark explained that the story was a way to divert attention away from his own department's failings at getting lysine production up and running. With the truth out, Mark realized he was in a bad situation. The FBI now knew he was capable of lying to them, and there was no guarantee that he wouldn't be prosecuted for his own role in the fixing of lysine prices if he didn't toe the line. And underneath everything, Mark was still stealing from ADM. Hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time, using the same network of fake employees, shell companies, and dodgy invoices. He couldn't stop himself. The only chance he had of some kind of protection was to become a secret informant on his own company and his own colleagues. He agreed to do whatever the agents wanted and threw himself into his double life. He was now a full-time informant for the FBI, and a very good one, too. From then on, he taped everything. 
He taped his bosses, Jim Randall and Mick Andreas, telling him how to handle their Korean and Japanese competitors. He taped Terry Wilson, the head of ADM's corn processing operation. He taped the negotiations themselves in hotel rooms, at conference tables, at steakhouse restaurants late into the night. And he learned how to ask leading questions to get the responses he knew the FBI wanted. Despite his anxiety, Mark even became a little proud of the work he was doing. One morning, when he was coming out of his driveway on his way to work, he called over his friend Rusty Williams, the man who kept the expansive grounds of his Mewikwa mansion. He opened up his briefcase and detached a panel on the back lid, showing Rusty the hidden, high-tech tape recorder the FBI had given to him. Mark looked very pleased with himself. Just call me 0014, he said, because I'm twice as smart as 007. Over the next year, Mark attended several meetings with his price-fixing associates from ADM, Ajimoto, and other corporations from Korea and Japan in various hotel rooms across the country. In each room, the FBI had set up cameras and audio recorders. To the FBI agents, the evidence they were collecting was dynamite. And what was becoming clear was the scale of price-fixing in other markets, not just in lysine, but in citric acid, gluconate, high-fructose corn syrup, and MSG. The scheme was even bigger than they'd realized. At one point, during a meeting in Irvine, California, Mark was sitting at a table with his associates when he noticed a strange clicking sound coming from his briefcase, which he'd placed on the table. Mark knew instantly that it was the high-tech tape recorder hidden inside the back panel. He had to shut the sound off before the others noticed. As the FBI agents watched on through the hidden cameras, right there in the middle of this highly illegal meeting, Mark opened up his briefcase, pulled back the false lid, and started fiddling with the tape recorder. If one other person in the room glanced over, the operation would be blown. But no one did. The recorder stopped clicking. Mark closed his briefcase and got back to fixing prices. The agents had never seen anything like it. Finally, in March 1994, the FBI felt they had all the evidence they needed. Mark's taping days were finally over. The agents would now go away to build their case, and Mark would continue working at ADM until they were ready to raid the headquarters. Both Brian Shepard and Bob Herndon, the FBI agents leading the case, were seriously impressed. Mark Whitaker had provided them with gold dust. And the truth was, the pair had become almost fond of Mark. In one meeting with their bosses, Bob Herndon pulled out a Christmas card that he received from the Whitaker family. It showed a picture of Mark, Ginger, and their kids. Bob told his bosses that the picture reminded him that Mark was a real person, that he had done good work for the FBI and they needed to look after him. They wanted to try to make sure that the FBI would financially support Mark and his family if he did end up losing his job. But despite the FBI's praise, 
all of the pressure and lies had taken their toll on Mark. Normally a pretty personable and amiable guy, in the weeks that followed, he became moody and erratic. He fell into a deep depression, and his behavior became more and more strange. He would take his leaf blower out to tend the yard in the middle of a storm. He'd ride his horses at 3 a.m. He even claimed at one point that he'd been kidnapped by thugs hired by ADM and threatened for several hours. Andy told his wife, Ginger, he believed that when this was all over, he'd be appointed head of ADM for doing the right thing in cooperating with the FBI. Ginger became seriously concerned, fearing for her husband's safety. By early summer 1995, two and a half years after his first meeting with Agent Brian Shepard, Mark Whitaker was struggling. He had helped the FBI collect evidence against his friends and colleagues at work and was desperately trying to cover up his ongoing embezzlement scheme. When the FBI told him they were finally ready to go in and confront his colleagues at ADM, Mark was relieved. He would at least be able to drop one of his acts. On June 27th, as afternoon turned into evening, Mark Whitaker was enjoying a quiet drink with Terry Wilson and another associate in the lavish private dining room at the Decatur Country Club. Out of the corner of his eye, Mark spotted three men come through the doors and advance towards him. He steeled himself. He was ready to play his part. It was Brian Shepard and two other FBI agents. They approached the table. Mr. Whitaker, Mr. Wilson, they said, we need to talk to you both privately, right now. At that moment, Dozens of FBI operatives were fanning out across Illinois, into the homes of executives and into the very headquarters of ADM itself. A huge sting operation was underway. It was the culmination of two and a half years of investigative work into criminal price fixing at Archer Daniels Midland. Mark was ready for all the crooked bosses around him to be cleared out of the way. He still believed that once this was all sorted, he would be made CEO of the company. He, after all, had done the right thing. But the operation didn't quite go to plan. After interviewing many of the ADM staff, the FBI agents soon discovered that some of the executives had known that the sting was coming. When the agents asked Mark if he'd warned his colleagues, he protested. But then he admitted it. He had told his secretary that he'd been working with the FBI months ago. He hadn't wanted her to be shocked when things got serious. And when the agents pushed him further, Mark revealed that he'd also tipped off two other friends, non-executives at ADM. He said that he was only trying to protect people that he liked, people that he felt he could trust, and he hadn't given them too many details. But clearly, some of the information had made its way up the ladder to a couple of the executives. Brian and Bob were furious with Mark. Instead of having the element of surprise, Mark had naively ruined it for them. 
The agents weren't sure how many of the executives had known the sting was coming. There were some who had clearly been in the dark. And even the ones who had been warned didn't seem to know the information had come from Mark. Perhaps his friends had been loyal enough to keep his name out of it. But either way, his actions were enough to undermine the operation. Mark was no longer in the FBI's good books. And things were about to get even worse for him. Before the sting, Bob and Brian had told Mark that once the operation had started, he would have to get his own lawyer. He had to tell his bosses at ADM that he was cooperating with the government and refuse any offer of legal support they made him. If Mark took on a lawyer hired and paid for by ADM, the FBI would have inside knowledge of their legal strategy if the case went to trial. And that was against the rules. But of course, As soon as Mark declared to his bosses that he wouldn't accept an ADM lawyer, they put two and two together and realized that Mark had been the informant all along. At that point, the hurt and betrayed Mick Andreas and his father Duane quickly ordered the company's new high-profile lawyers to start going through every meeting, every dealing, every transaction Mark Whitaker had ever been involved in. If they could dig up some dirt on him, it would seriously help their defense. Mark knew it was only a matter of time before they discovered his secret. And in a rare moment of clarity, he realized that coming clean to the FBI was now his only option. In early August 1995, a few weeks after the raid, Mark phoned Brian and Bob and asked to meet them for lunch. The three men drove to a Chinese restaurant that Mark liked. There, the FBI agents were noticeably cagey about speaking to Mark. They couldn't talk about the case now that it was about to go to the courts. They were there as friends, as men who cared about Mark and were thankful for what he had done. Mark, Brian, and Bob sat at the back of the restaurant at a large, round table. They ordered their food quickly, And the conversation seemed to go nowhere, until Mark started to say that he wanted to confess something. Brian and Bob were instantly nervous. It was highly unorthodox to be meeting like this. They wanted the chat to be informal, friendly. They warned Mark that he had to be careful about what he said. He was still speaking to the FBI, after all, and he didn't have a lawyer with him. Mark started by questioning Brian and Bob about hypotheticals. If Mark had the use of a company car, but chose to drive his own car to work, would that be a crime? Brian and Bob laughed quietly. Okay, Mark said. What if it was regular practice at ADM to inflate invoices and contracts and for high-ranking employees to take kickbacks? That got the FBI agent's attention. Mark went on to explain that on the orders of his bosses, including Mick Andreas, he had embezzled around $500,000 from ADM. This new revelation took the FBI agents completely by surprise. It was entirely new information to them. They told Mark that he needed to talk to his lawyer immediately, 
an investigation would be opened against him. With that, they left the restaurant. At that very moment, unbeknownst to the FBI and to Mark, ADM's lawyers were uncovering a paper trail of forged invoices, fake contracts, and missing employees. A paper trail that led through a handful of offshore bank accounts. All of it could be traced back to Mark Whitaker. And it revealed that what Mark had told the agents was only half true. Although price-fixing was rampant and common at ADM, Mark's allegations that executives regularly took kickbacks were untrue. Only Mark was embezzling money. And it was a lot more than $500,000. Within a few days, ADM's lawyers collected their evidence and presented it to the Justice Department. Their motives were hardly pure. It was a way to discredit the government's star witness. Still, what those lawyers found was that since 1990, Mark Whitaker, the government's informant, had stolen $2 million from ADM, all while working for the FBI. The Justice Department had no choice. They had to open a new case, a case against Mark Whitaker. Again, Mark was in a corner. He had spun so many lies in so many different directions, and now the consequences were coming back to bite him. No matter how honorably he had behaved in being an informant for the FBI, he had still committed a serious crime. As the investigation into Mark's fraud was getting underway, Mark tried to confess again. He was done with lying. In a meeting with prosecutors, Mark revealed that ADM lawyers didn't even know the half of it. He hadn't stolen $500,000. It wasn't even $2 million. Over the last five years, Mark said, he'd stolen $7.7 million from ADM. By now, the price-fixing investigation was front-page news, and the ADM lawyers knew that this revelation was a lethal weapon to use in their favor against Mark Whitaker. In fact, it could possibly derail the entire price-fixing prosecution. It wasn't long before Mark Whitaker's name and picture appeared in newspapers and on TV stations all across the world. Soon, everyone knew who he was. And when journalists began digging into the details of his life story, it crumbled under their scrutiny. Mark had claimed on his CV that he had received a master's degree from the prestigious Kellogg Graduate School of Management. He also said he had a doctorate in biochemistry from Cornell. But Mark never got his master's from Kellogg. His doctorate from Cornell was in nutrition, not biochemistry. And that amazing story Mark used to tell about being orphaned from a young age and adopted by a wealthy businessman from Ohio? It was false, too. Mark's biological parents were alive and well, and definitely weren't wealthy. With his carefully constructed persona collapsing around him, Mark hit rock bottom. In late August 1995, after making an attempt on his life, he was taken to Chicago and put under the care of a psychiatrist 
while he waited to hear what would happen to him. And while he was there, he made an important discovery. The psychiatrist had analyzed Mark and his behavior and diagnosed him with bipolar disorder type 1, which involves a repeating cycle of manic episodes followed by dark depression. For Mark, everything finally made sense. The same disorder that had helped him rise to the top of ADM had also, he felt, triggered his grand delusions and bizarre behavior. It was a huge relief to have a label for what he was going through. Now he could be helped with medication and therapy. But only time would tell whether this diagnosis would help his defense. Far above the head of Mark Whitaker and far above the heads of Bob Herndon and Brian Shepard, a battle was being waged between ADM's lawyers and the government, and even between different departments of the government. The Attorney General Janet Reno was involved. The FBI Director Louis Free was involved. The infighting went right to the top. ADM was so powerful and so well-tapped into the government that it was able to use its leverage to play one bureaucratic office off against another. At one point, several FBI agents even suspected that some members of the Justice Department were actively trying to sink the price-fixing case and exonerate ADM by going after Mark Whitaker alone. ADM's lawyers were so aggressive that there was suspicion that Bob Herndon and Brian Shepard were themselves implicated in Mark's schemes. And Mark's bizarre behavior didn't help either. He went to the press claiming that he had even recorded the FBI agents telling him to destroy tapes that were damaging to the government's case. Although that too turned out to be a lie. Still, the evidence that Mark had collected, the countless meetings and conversations he had covertly recorded, was too strong to ignore. And in the end, ADM were forced to settle with the government, paying fines on lysine price-fixing of $100 million. They would go on to pay $400 million in fines for price-fixing in the high-fructose corn syrup business, too. The foreign companies involved in the conspiracy also agreed to pay tens of millions in fines. Mick Andreas and Terry Wilson were convicted and spent three years in prison. Dwayne Andreas, the all-powerful head of Archer Daniels Midland, quietly stepped down. And as for Mark Whitaker, he eventually admitted that during his time at ADM, he personally stole more than $9 million. And while the money had been laundered through various bank accounts in Switzerland and the Cayman Islands, Mark hadn't managed to conceal it very well. In the end, it was easy for investigators to follow the money. Mark also eventually admitted that nobody had ordered him to embezzle funds or take kickbacks. While price-fixing was common practice at ADM, fraud wasn't. It was just Mark, all on his own. Because of his fraud, Mark lost the protection that came with his status as a cooperating witness. Eventually, he too was convicted of price-fixing. But his largest conviction was for fraud. On March 4, 1998, 
Mark Whitaker was sentenced to nine years in prison. In his sentencing remarks, the judge described how Mark had manipulated his friends and colleagues. If he hadn't told lies and stolen money, it was likely that he might have one day taken over ADM. The judge said Mark's motivation was just garden variety, venality, and greed. Still, despite that venality, despite that greed, Mark's sentence was three times longer than the sentences handed down to Mick Andreas and Terry Wilson for fixing lysine prices. The whistleblower whose evidence had led to their downfall eventually spent eight and a half years in prison and was released in 2006. He became a born-again Christian and eventually started to rebuild his life by becoming the chief science officer for a biotechnology company in California. Throughout it all, his wife Ginger, who prompted Mark to speak to the FBI in the first place, stuck by his side. In 2009, the investigative journalist Kurt Eichenwald's book about the ADM case, called The Informant, was turned into a film starring Matt Damon. Just before the film came out, several FBI agents who worked on the case came forward to say that Mark was treated badly by the government. He had stumbled into becoming a whistleblower. He became an informant for the FBI to cover up his own crimes, his own lies, his own falsehoods. Out of desperation, out of a need to hide his own wrongdoing, he became a key part of an investigation that led to the exposure of one of the largest corporate crimes in American history. In the end, Mark Whitaker proved that whistleblowers aren't always heroes. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Mark Whitaker, amongst the many sources we used, we found Kurt Eichenwald's book, The Informant, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by James Robbins. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. <laughs>